We have a real distinguished pleasure, a conversation with Dr. David Hanscom out of the Pacific Northwest. His story is incredible on how he shifted gears and some of his own personal experience with pain and strategies that, that he has developed for patients. This is Pain Refrain. Well, welcome back to another episode of Pain Refrain. David is a, an orthopedic surgeon who has a tremendously interesting background going from primarily surgical practice to now what is what is more of an integrated practice. I'm still including surgical components. David's actually an accomplished author, Back in Control is the name of his book, um, a website by the same name, backincontrol.com. And you guys are going to see some of the things we talk about today are, are very oriented towards safe and effective alternatives to surgical management and um, certainly still surgery when necessary, but you're going to hear from David today some of the ways that you can avoid that and really put together a practice that that puts surgery at the appropriate point in the care pathway, um, still including it responsibly, but certainly utilizing an evidence-based paradigm to get to that point. So such a tremendous privilege to have David on the show. David is coming to us from uh, out on the West Coast. And David, if you could just give the listeners a little background on where you're at, what you're doing, and what brought you to the pain space. I'm happy to be on the show. I'm excited about what your group is doing. And I'm a spine surgeon in Seattle, Washington. I practice at Swedish Hospital, Swedish Medical Center. I've been practicing complex spine surgery for over 30 years. And I'm one of those surgeons that came in on my fellowship with a zeal that I needed to do surgery on pretty much everybody. And I would feel rather guilty if I couldn't find a reason to perform surgery. When I hit Seattle in 1986, we were doing nine times the rate of spine surgery as anybody else in the entire country for low back pain. And we just discovered a, discovered a new procedure, and we felt that doing fusions for back pain was the right thing to do. And in 1993, why the data came out that the success rate in workers' comp patients in the state of Washington for back pain was about 15% success rate at one year as far as return to work and 22% at two years. So I just stopped. I thought that the success rate was over 90%, but there wasn't any data. Then all the data that's come out since then has been the same dismal data. It's about 20 to 30% success rate for a spine fusion for back pain. So then I developed my own chronic pain for about 15 years from 1988 to 2003. And the last seven years of those were absolutely extreme. No hope, no way out, tried everything you can imagine. And I came out of the process by accident in 2003. And I've been fine ever since. Then it took me about five years to figure out what happened. I wrote my first book about my experience in 2012 I just republished my book, Back in Control, A Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain in 2016, which is much more neuroscience-based, much more experienced, much clearer book. But we've watched hundreds of patients go absolutely pain-free with using really basic principles. Well, thanks for that intro. And David, I'd like to follow that up with, again, you've come from a very interesting background where you spent years of your life becoming an exceptional, by all manners, an exceptional a surgeon and the ability to technically perform really very complex procedures. I'm curious how, as you began to see that data where, especially on the fusion the data, which being very direct was abysmal, how did that strike you? And I mean, again, when you spent so much of your career dedicated to really being excellent at a certain procedure? Well, it was pretty darn frustrating. I mean, I didn't know what to do. I always felt really chagrined at what I had been doing that hadn't worked. 
And then the problem with the spine fusion for back pain, it's not a benign procedure. So even if the surgery goes well, which generally it does, you still have, first of all, the pain is still there. The data also shows that if you do a procedure in the presence of chronic pain, you can actually induce or cause chronic pain at the new surgical site 40% of the time. And of course, in the same area, you can make the pain even worse. So the chance of getting you better is about 20 to 30%. The chance of making you worse is over 40 to 50%. So it's incredibly discouraging. So I didn't know what to do. And so it wasn't until 2003 when I started putting the pieces together, actually it wasn't until 2006, that I started being able to help people out of their pain pathways. But the data now shows is that chronic pain is a neurological disorder, as you two well know, that pain gets memorized by the brain. It doesn't actually matter what you do surgically, the pain's still there. The most classic example of that, of course, is phantom limb pain, which you have the leg amputated. Before the amputation, of course, there's peripheral vascular problems, trauma problems, blood supply problems. So most people with amputation problems have a lot of pain before the amputation, and they not only still feel the leg or the arm, but they also feel the pain. So that's a pretty dramatic example about how the brain can memorize the pathways, which are permanent. First of all, I really appreciate your honesty and just you, you being open about your experience and, and everything that brought you to this point. So I guess I would, I'm so curious now, David, wh- where do you go from here? So is surgery still indicated? Um, how do you change your patient selection? As a general group um, of orthopedic surgeons, do you feel you guys are getting better? You guys and gals are getting better at, at figuring out who that 20 to 30% is that would respond? And just sort of, you know, in light of the data and, and the understanding we now have, kind of, you know, where do we go from here and what's it based on? So So let me be really clear right now. And again, I'm not being critical of my profession because I was in the same boat. Mm -hmm. If I hadn't gone through my own chronic pain experience, I would still be where everybody else is. So right now, spine surgery is way off track. Instead of doing one and two level fusions for back pain, which didn't work, we're now doing seven and eight level fusions for back pain, which not only doesn't work, there's about a 70% complication rate. We're We're getting more aggressive with surgery. There is a paper out of Baltimore in 2014 that It's been documented in the literature for over 50 years that stress, anxiety, depression, catastrophizing, fear avoidance all negatively affect outcomes. Lack of sleep is going to be a major factor as far as affecting chronic pain. Chronic pain is a very complex topic. Each person's complex. What the medical profession has been doing is that we've been throwing simplistic solutions to solve a complex problem. So I think probably, I used to say 50% of spine surgery wasn't indicated. I now think that's 70%. So we're actually getting worse at patient selection. So again, this paper out of Baltimore showed that only 10% of surgeons were actually assessing these variables before they did surgery, only 10%. Yet the data shows they are major risk factors for poor outcomes. So what we started in my practice about five years ago, and now Swedish is starting about a year ago, is that we know all these factors that we talked about have a very significant negative impact on outcomes. So we just systematically started addressing sleep, stress, physical conditioning, medication management, et cetera. And we did that for every patient, whether it was surgical or non-surgical. But we did it for all of our surgical patients, definitely. And we found out that even with structural problems, that surgical patients were starting to cancel the surgery because the pain disappeared. So I used to think that if you have spinal stenosis, ruptured disc, different issues that normally would respond to surgery, that I used to think that if you did surgery on these incredibly compelling lesions, that the pain relief would be so dramatic that would sort of compel them into a new life. That's simply not true. So Mm -hmm. I would have an endless number of patients that we do this perfect operation on, very severe pathology, and they would do poorly. In fact, they would do worse. I didn't know the data. 
So what we do now with every patient for at least 12 weeks, we deal with sleep, stress, everything we just talked about is very much of a self-directed process. We use my book and the website as a self-directed process. Physical therapy is part of it. And what the website and the book is intended to do is, is allow each practitioner to do their job well, and then the patient takes charge of the rest of it. For instance, what physical therapy allows you to do the stretching, strengthening that you know well to do, mobilize joints. Then the patient can start dealing with their own sleep issues. They can start dealing with their own stress issues. So it allows you to do your job in a nice way, but the other bases of chronic pain are also covered. The key to getting better is simply becoming aware of the problem, understanding the neurological nature of chronic pain. The second part is, is addressing every aspect of it at the same time, which isn't hard once you understand the problem. Then the third part is the patient takes control. Mm-hmm. So by definition, since each individual is a complex organism, he or she is actually the only one that can solve the problem. So we've done this prehab, we call it prehab, rehabilitation before surgery. And so we do it with every patient every time. So we just simply take the variables that we know affect outcomes. And when we do surgery, we have spectacular outcomes. And then we now have almost 100 surgical patients that simply cancel the surgery because their pain disappeared. That was not expected. In my first book, I said, look, if you have a surgical lesion, fix it and deal with this rehab afterwards. I didn't know the data about surgical outcomes being worse than presence of chronic pain. So I do these beautiful operations and thought people would get better and do the rehab afterwards. They get worse. So when we started doing the prehab first, again, our, we're probably in, in the 90% plus range of surgical successes. And we don't see the failures like we used to see anymore. And we did not expect the surgical patients to cancel the surgery. So it's a very long answer to your original question, is surgery still indicated? So surgery is indicated if you have a structural problem with matching symptoms. In other words, you can see the problem on imaging test, but the symptoms match. Mm-hmm. So that situation, when you take off the bone spur, causing the pain down the side of the leg, it works most of the time. If you can't see it, you can't fix it. So what's happened in spine surgery has been sort of this blind faith that we've tried everything and surgery is the last resort. Well, it's just a tool. It's like physical therapy. It's like injections. It's like acupuncture. It's just a tool to relieve a structural problem, but it's only part of the solution. Mm-hmm. And again, if you have nonspecific back pain, that's a, usually a muscular problem, tenderness problem. And of course, the brain memorizes the circuits. We do know that disc degeneration does not cause back pain. Neither does arthritis, bulging disc, rupture disc. So we actually know that these things that we do, spine surgery on for back pain, actually don't cause back pain. That's been well documented. So what's happening now in the U.S. particularly is that we know that these discs do not cause back pain, yet it's the single most common reason why we do back surgery. So it's projected by 2020. I was listening to an industry presentation a while back. They're projecting over a million spine fusions in the U.S. by 2020. Oh my man! So they're looking. So the so the medical instrumentation, the medical device industry looks at spine surgery as a growth industry. Mm-hmm. So we know that disc degeneration doesn't cause back pain. We know the success rate is less than thirty percent, and there's not one paper, by the way, that shows us, that shows that back surgery works for back pain. Not one. Doctor Hanscom, first of all, to hear your voice of reason and sanity in this medical industrial complex of spine surgery. Literally, I'm stunned and refreshed. I have to state that right off. There's been a lot of, I felt, lone voices in the wilderness that have been speaking out against this 
harm that we're causing our society. I often say in Colorado, you know, I mean, the variability, I live uh, 60 miles north of uh, Denver in a town called Fort Collins. And I say for every two miles I drive up home from the airport when I land tomorrow, my chance of spine surgery goes up by 1%. I mean, it, I mean, as you come away from Denver? Yeah, we have higher surgical rates, rates north of Denver in the, the Fort Collins Loveland Triangle, according to the Dartmouth database. So, you know, we're in the about the 92 percentile, uh, Denver uh, at the 70th percentile. That data is a few years old, but you get the picture. You know, we're not that much different 60 miles away, yet yeah, the variability on surgical rates is it, it's not explained by people. Uh, <laughs> it's not explained by the rate of stenosis, the rate of herniation, as you know. Right. I mean, we're seeing patients with spinal canals. As you know, the spinal diameter is about 15, 14 millimeter canals. We start doing spinal stenosis surgery at around maybe seven or eight millimeters when the CSF is, is disappeared or the, the nerves are being pinched. But I'm seeing patients with canals that are four, five, and six millimeters actually have their leg pain disappear. Their neurogenic claudication disappears. They can walk as far as they want to walk. And the pain goes away. Mm-hmm. So we're stunned. We, we did not expect that. I got goosebumps over here. You're laying out everything that seems to make sense finally, right? Exhausting, you know, you know, more conservative rehab, really looking at some of those key variables that are associated with, with chronic or persistent pain, particularly, um, far, far, far more so than, you know, normal signs and degenerative changes of the spine as the years go on. It's just incredible. And it sounds like when you do it that way, the, the folks that don't respond to that sometimes do have a condition that responds well to surgery. And that's why your success rates are so darn high. So here, here, here we are using a surgical intervention at the exact right point in the place of care and the plan of care. And here it is working beautifully. And, and, and we're avoiding the unnecessary cost and harm of, of, of misplacing inside of the overall plan of care where that should sit. So that's awesome. David, can you speak a little bit to how that actually plays out? So, so how have you organized that when, when a pa- patient calls or do you consult with them and, and you say, okay, this might be surgical, but I'm going to have you work with my team. And then do they come in for a handful of sessions? I mean, just for all the folks who are listening saying, okay, here it is. Here's the model. What's the actual structure of that? Yeah, I want to just pretend that you're my patient for a second. Yeah, you bet. So you come into my office with a bone spur that's causing L5 pain on the side of your leg. And let's say it's sort of medium in nature and we may or may not consider surgery. Let's say you have about 60% back pain and 40% leg pain. And so you have a situation that could be surgical, maybe not. I say, look, we're going to do this prehab process for about 8 to 12 weeks. And so what I do is I give them a copy of my book. I actually think it's better for the patient to buy the book, by the way, sort of a commitment to to the process. Um, Same thing, I have a website that's completely open source. There's not even an email required to get on it. And the website is the action plan of the book. So reading the book is going to do nothing. So I don't have a program right now. I have a book and a website. So this is about 90% self-directed. That's why I'm excited where we're getting more physical therapists interested in the process because you spend time with the patients, you talk to the patients. And by the way, the number one prognostic factor for patient outcomes is a patient feeling listened to right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So physical therapists have the opportunity to do that. Plus, you guys seem to be noticed on the neuroscience much faster than the medical profession. So I said, look, here's a book, here's a website, I'll see you back in two weeks. I don't spend that much time in the office with the patient because I don't have time, number one. Second of all, it's not hard, but it's too much to explain in the middle of an office visit. So I give him the book, I give him the website, I said, look, here's stage one where there's five steps. The first step is learn about chronic pain. 
which comes about over time. The second and third steps, I ask them to start that evening. Step two is called expressive writing. You simply write down your thoughts and you tear them up immediately. And it still sounds silly to me actually even talking to you about it right now, but there's over 300 research papers since 1982 documenting the effectiveness of what's called expressive writing. Most of the research has been done in what's called negative writing, but it turns out it doesn't matter. Whether it's positive thoughts or negative thoughts, rational or irrational, it doesn't matter. It's the one strategy that broke me out of my cycle after 15 solid years of pain. I picked up a book that said to write, so I started to write. Within two weeks, for the first time in 15 years, things started to shift, and within six months, I was fine. Now, it's not just the writing, but it is the starting point. And for whatever reason, what's called expressive writing starts breaking up these neurological pathways, and what you're doing with this process is you're creating new pathways around the old permanent pathways. So the writing somehow externalizes thoughts, and the thoughts are in the paper, you're here, and that space is separated by vision and feel, which is part of the unconscious part of the brain. So what happens is that the writing is a foundational starting point. It's the only one absolute starting point. The rest of it is completely open to a patient's interpretation. But I say, look, I don't care if you read the book ever, please start the writing. I can tell within 30 seconds if a patient started the writing or not. Nothing really shifts until that writing exercise starts. So it should be write things down, tear them up. And I have them tear them up for two reasons. One is to not analyze the thoughts. Because if you analyze the thoughts, you're actually reinforcing the pathways, right? Mm-hmm. Second thing is, is that you want to write with freedom, positive or negative. The third step is called active meditation, where you simply put your brain on a different sensation. The unconscious brain, of which pain is part of, is one million times stronger than the conscious brain. The million to one ratio. So you can't solve this with affirmations. You can't solve it with positive thinking because you're trying to use rational means to deal with these irrational circuits, which are permanent, by the way. So the writing simply separates you in with what's called neuroplasticity, in other words, stimulating the brain to change and develop new pathways. You have to create a, a, an awareness of what is, and then you separate, and then you redirect. So the writing does the awareness and separation in one step, the third step is called active meditation, where you simply pick a different sensation, and then you shift it off of pain pathways and into a different sensation. It could be taste, sound, touch, smell. Like, for example, just feel, just feel where you're sitting right this second. Or listen to some sounds around you. That's it. Three to five seconds. We actually do it all day long during surgery where we connect to feel. Same thing. And so what you've done, that's your redirecting process. So instead of fighting and reinforcing the pathways, you're actually simply switching sensory input. So if you want to do battle with the pain pathways, your nervous system is going to develop wherever you place its attention. So even though you're trying not to think about the pain or you're trying to solve the pain, you're actually reinforcing the pathways, right? Mm -hmm. The fourth step is sleep, which is number one. So sleep is a huge deal. There's a study out of Israel which documents that lack of sleep actually causes chronic pain. Mm-hmm. And so it's not the other way around. So they found they did not find a reverse causation. So lack of sleep actually induces chronic pain. The fifth step, which we just found out the last year or so, is I simply say, look, you cannot talk about your pain with anybody, especially your family. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to talk about your pain, I didn't realize how much people in chronic pain talked about their pain. But every patient now, every time, I had 10 conversations this afternoon, I said, look, when you walk out the door of my office, you will never talk about your pain again to anybody except your doctor. That's it, period. And so especially your family, because you simply wear your family down. They can't do much about it. It's actually not that interesting to other people. It's actually not that, it's not that interesting to you either, plus you're reinforcing the pathways. So again, 
your nervous system will develop wherever you place its attention. So that turned out to be actually one of the, inadvertently one of the most powerful parts of the project is simply taking pain off the table. <laughs> so that's that's stage one. I mean, there's stages three, four. There's stage, there's four stages in the process. But again, it's about a ninety percent self-directed process. So going back to the prehab question, that so I give people the book, the website. I'll see you back in two weeks. I now have a two pain specialist at Swedish to help adjust medications, stabilize narcotics, work on sleeping medications, whatever. So. It's helpful to have a physiatrist, primary care doctor help you through the process. But again, you're taking control. It's your process. Helpful to have cheerleaders and coaches makes a big difference. So over about 8 to 12 weeks, these people come in. And again, back pain disappears, or for the most part, drops down. Anxiety starts to drop down. They're sleeping better. So my criteria for doing surgery, for instance, talk to you about having pain down the side of your leg. I want your back pain gone. I want you sleeping at least six hours a night. I want your anxiety to drop down at least a little bit. Doesn't have to be perfect. I want the medications to find and stabilize. I want whatever physical activity you can do to find and stabilize. And then our, our, our surgical results are just been spectacular. I mean, I literally, my, I've had students with me for months at a time. And for instance, I have a nurse practitioner student with me right now. In the two weeks she's been with me, she's not seen one surgical failure. And that's not the way it used to be with me. I was like everybody else. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so interesting, uh, you know, as I hear you laid out those plans, David. I mean, there's real focus is on actually treating the disease process. In other words, it's a neurological disorder. Therefore, my uh, treatment solutions are going to, we're going to load it with the big guns and the neurological approach. In other words, you know, you, you describe this, you know, expressive writing, active meditation, this sleep, this basically not talking about it to others. It's a very uh, neurological centered approach, not right. centered on this, uh, you know, this piece of tissue down there. Now, that right. may still be relevant. No, it is. I mean, we do surgery. Yeah. Exactly. It's still, but what you've done is, okay, we're going to clean out the, the overlay of the chronicity as much as we can to have a more clearer picture of what we're, we're seeing. In my mind, I listen to you and it's very much, uh, first of all, it's, it, it's, it's so refreshing to hear this, this approach, but it's also very much a, this concept of differential diagnosis. The only way I can really tease out how much of this is, you know, neurological currently, I mean, we, you know, maybe some of the functional MRIs, things like this may lead us to, to kind of put them in that pattern, though, frankly, just uh, various questionnaires can get at some of these uh, features. But what you've done is say, okay, we're going to clean out the neurological system as best possible. And then we're going to now go back to does our imaging and physical examination findings very clearly correlate with uh, the patient's presentation now? So there's a couple things about that. First of all, if you clear the neurological process and there's still pain, there's still that sort of blind faith that we need to do surgery. But if you can't see a structural problem with matching symptoms, surgery is simply off the table, end of story. So it's not a choice anymore. Mm -hmm. So that's really key. That's a huge part of the process that's different because still, I mean, uh, let me ask you to, isn't there sort of this feeling among the therapists and the patients that, well, we've tried everything, now it's time to do surgery? Isn't that sort of held out there quite a bit? Um, I think that's a great question. I, I think we may have a bit of 
bias on your who you're asking. Um, I, I spend most of my career telling patients never underestimate the power of the medical system to make you worse, right. uh, especially when it comes to back pain. So I do think, though, that any provider that doesn't have a good understanding of the current neuroscience of pain says that they get scared, they're nervous, I, they throw up their hands and punt it back to the surgeon or to the to the prescriber of higher levels of opioids or whoever that may be because they don't have the knowledge base so just have you so openly said you know in the surgical world you know it's the understanding is not there from the providers i would agree with you i i think uh, many physical therapists have gotten more dialed into this uh, but as a but as a medical community i think we're a long ways to speaking a common language about this understanding of what chronic pain is and the 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 true disease process that it is i mean david certainly from my spot i I can see what you're saying you know that there is that hey we've tried everything and the the patient's perception is that the issue is in the tissue right and so their their default thought is well we've tried this stuff you know and we have to we have to cut the problem out of me and and, and go to that kind of final hammer and i think it really comes down to whether or not and, and whether it's a pt or another healthcare provider physician like you said primary care doc if someone can take on that task of really helping to reframe their their perception of what pain is and help them to understand that hurt doesn't equal harm and pain is in the brain and these these things are easy to say it's a lot different to try to meet the nuances of the patient and their and their perceptions coming into that circumstance where you're having that conversation and sprinkle it in in a way that nudges them but doesn't shove them and, and this is a real art and I like to think I take it on but I and I, I'd also like to tell you I have a huge amount of success but it, it's hit or miss and it's a real battle out there well I mean one person that changed my thinking quite a bit on this about four years ago was Lorimer Mosley, who I'm assuming influenced your society. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so he he and I are, are becoming, getting to know each other quite a bit. And he's actually going to be in Seattle in May. And some of your group may want to come to Seattle and actually meet with us. But he's actually going to talk to our spine interest group in May. And as you know, he's a profoundly intelligent neuroscientist, but he also presents the concept so clearly. Of course, he's very entertaining too. But I mean, his concept about the way the brain interprets the pain, as you know, he talks about pain being an illusion. And he, you know, he has those, that great YouTube video that demonstrates that, that Adelaide TED Talk. You know, he's reviewed the book. Um, he likes the book a lot. He um, really thinks from a clinical application why he really write down what he thinks should be done. So that, and there's a paper by Hashmi out of, Chicago, where I want to go back to the question you just asked a little bit ago, is that they documented when the pain becomes chronic. Let's take acute low back pain. They did an experiment with the functional MRI scans, which shows brain activity, where they took people with acute low back pain less than three months. And of course, the pain was located in the nociceptive center or the pain center. And then they took people that had chronic pain over 10, for more than 10 years. The pain existed only in the emotional center. It did not exist in the pain center. Then they took the patients with the acute pain and followed them for a year. They scanned them for every three months. About half of those patients became chronic. In every one of those, the pain shifted from the pain center to the emotional center. Mm -hmm. And then the neuroscience also shows that pain is a perception that gets connected with more and more life experiences and neurons that fire together, wire together, so the pain memory can't be erased. Because it's connected to so many other life experiences. So that's where you have these pain pathways that are deeply embedded in the nervous system. By the way, Lorimer Mosley does not like the term pathways. I have to come up with a different term. But we'll call them pain circuits. Whatever you want to call them, 
this pain memory gets embedded in the brain and you can't get rid of it. And again, the harder you try to get rid of it with all sorts of stuff, like for instance, take talk therapy, you actually reinforce the pathways. Mm-hmm. So that's where you have to stimulate the brain to create new pathways and bypass. And there's lots of things to do that are very, very effective. So I would guesstimate with engagement in the process, probably 80 to 9% of people go to pain for you within three to six months. Some people it's much faster and some people it's a year or two, but at some tipping point, most people go to pain free. So this is not about managing the pain. This is about solving the pain. Yeah, and that's a very interesting point you just raised because, again, we're still on this kind of management perspective of when we hear a chronic problem or we label it chronic, therefore, we're going to manage the condition and versus saying, no, the large number of folks, this is a, a reversible disorder or it's a curable disorder let's say state it that way that there's a cure for it the way we've been trying to do it (laughs) hasn't been successful but we have new strategies that can be well when i give lectures to groups of doctors i ask them how many of you enjoy treating chronic pain and essentially nobody raises their hands they're not it's not because they dislike the patients but they're they're frustrated because they don't have the right paradigm right so they do what they can do People don't respond. Patients get frustrated. They get frustrated. So it's a very unpleasant experience for everybody. So for me, I gave a lecture at the Mayo Clinic a few years ago on enjoying the management of chronic pain. It's by far and away the most rewarding part of my practice. Mm -hmm. So you take somebody who's been in the hole for years. All of a sudden, they're not only out of the hole, they're thriving. Pain's gone. They're expanding their life experiences. Um, I saw a couple of people today, again, same thing, dismally in the hole with chronic pain, and they're fine. So it's incredibly rewarding to watch these people come out of the hole. As I read some of your work, uh, David, um, I was struck by you know your voice and your authenticity and your writing. And I think it's related to this topic because you've written on physician suicide. And I look at where we are in the healthcare challenges right now. And you mentioned how nobody raised their hands to wanting to treat patients in persistent or chronic pain. And yet all those people, the vast majority, 95%, went into their profession to serve and to help others. And I I look at the relationship of, of the burnout and the stresses that are upon us because a system that was largely influenced by the medical device industry and the pharmaceutical industry when it comes to pain management Mm -hmm. We didn't get the tools. The, right. People didn't have the tools that we now know. And I think it's it's a there's a direct relationship to a lot of that 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 burnout and and on the worst side, uh, physician suicide. Your thoughts? So yeah, a couple things. So I, I went through horrible suicidal burnout, as I pointed out in the book. I barely made it through. I've got 19 medical colleagues dead from suicide, including one of my best friends. I just got a letter from a physician yesterday who ha- who happened to look at one of my YouTube videos and and literally averted suicide based on that video. So it turns out what causes physicians to kill themselves isn't depression, it isn't being overworked, it's not even stress, it's anxiety. And so what happens, we're perfectionist, we're self-critical, which creates anxiety. Then remember when you can't solve anxiety, your body kicks into adrenaline and you become angry. So I realized that the same model that works for physician burnout actually works for chronic pain and vice versa. That's how I figured out the model for chronic pain is that mm-hmm. it is anger driven anxiety that causes burnout and obsessive behavior. Same thing in chronic pain, your you know, pain causes anxiety. 
And when you're trapped by anything, finances, relationships, pain, well, your body secretes adrenaline to try to solve the problem, which be, which means you're anger, angry. So anger is just anxiety on adrenaline. So what kills people is not depression, it's anger. Because remember, anger is destructive, including self-destructive. The ultimate act of destruction, of course, is suicide. Now, what prevents that, of course, a lot of the tools in the book do that. But the irony in modern-day medicine, we have more tools and technology to solve people's, people's problems than we ever have, but we don't have the capacity to listen. So when I talk to physicians who are sort of re-energizing their career, et cetera, it's not that physicians don't want to talk to patients, but it's actually talking to the patients that energizes physicians. In other words, medicine, if you, if you put yourself in the doctor's shoes, is that it's mind-numbing repetition. There's back pain, there's PT injections, medication management that you can do that doesn't really work with chronic pain. And you do that day after day after day after day, it just burns you right out. What makes it incredibly interesting is the patient. That's where the variety comes in. That's where the interest comes in. So the way you connect to medicine to avoid burnout is actually talking to the patients. It's the one thing that the business of medicine has taken away from us is our capacity to talk to the patient. So physicians are incredibly motivated to do the right thing. They, first of all, are not trained how to do this. If I had not gone through my own suicidal burnout chronic pain process, I would have no idea what's going on. The reason why I think that the, I call it the doc project, direct your own care is effective is because I spent 15 years in the hole at the deepest level. My experience was extreme. In a suicidal episode in 2002, I actually started to take action. I'm not sure why I escaped it. So I've been through every millimeter of this process at a level I can't even put into words. So I learned it from the bottom up. That's why I think patients can figure it out pretty quickly on their own because there's not one part of it I don't know, including the suicide part of it. And it's not that hard. As you you looked in the book, that the solution to this whole process is not very hard. But yeah, it's the anger that drives the suicide it's also the anxiety that drives the anger. Wow, that was a an excellent description. I'm left a little uh, speechless again. That's when I was reading your work. It's just, again, your authenticity and your voice and understanding and the humanity, it, it projects uh, across as you talk. And I think, again, as we look to what he, will heal us as a healthcare system and a society, you've hit the nail on the head. We're craving connection and communication. And it's on both sides. The patients are are craving and the providers. Right. Again, I just so appreciate your story. And I, I just so appreciate where you're going with this. I'm curious. I don't want to get overly hopeful. I want to be realistic. David, is, is what you're doing catching on in the orthopedic realm. And now I say this um, with a willingness to air our own dirty laundry and PT about the percentage of PTs that are out there practicing in strict accordance to our practice guidelines. The answer is not nearly enough and we'll leave it at that. The data is out there that the the overall success rate for surgery for back pain is not excellent. That utilizing other approaches before going to that um, could improve them and would be the overall best choice of, of care progression. David, is that where the education of orthopedic surgeons is going? Is that what you're colleagues are recognizing and implementing. Um, you mentioned that that a lot of folks are seeing spine surgery um, as a growth sector. That does not sound encouraging. So it is not heading the right direction. So what's happened in the last five years particularly is that I train between three to six spine fellows a year and they're well trained. They have excellent surgical indications. They're excellent technical surgeons. You know, I'm Seattle senior spine surgeon. I've been this for 30 years. 
I've been through every range of spine surgery you can imagine. So the surgery I do is the most complex surgery that exists. So I'm a complex spine surgeon. So what drives me is two things. First of all, I'm seeing incredible results doing nothing. I'm going to say nothing. I mean the process we're talking about, nothing surgically. Second of all, or three things drive me. The third, second thing is I'm just lucky to be alive. I mean, I barely escaped. So whatever I can do to give back and help another person out of this whole, to me, is just a gift. And it somehow makes my own suffering a little bit more worthwhile. The thing that's really driving me even harder than that is that we're, we're really hurting people badly with spine surgery. So this younger generation of surgeons is being trained in a way that they're simply not being shown the options at all. They go to the clinics. They're, they're, the attending guys aren't even walking in the room. I mean, even before I knew about chronic pain, I never made a surgical decision on the first visit. I didn't know the patient. They don't know me. So there's a huge push in spine surgery to have all this imaging done ahead of time so the surgeon can make that surgical decision on the first visit. That makes no sense, right? Second of all, we're finding out that situational stresses have a massive effect on people's pain. Mm -hmm. So I have patients that come in that all of a sudden these bone spurs have been there for 10 years, and all of a sudden the pain started a month ago. Well, guess what? They just lost their job. They just lost their spouse. Their nephew committed suicide. Their husband committed suicide. I had one young kid whose mother and father both had died um, at 15 years old. I had another woman whose granddaughter was killed by her son accidentally backing out of the driveway. Mm -hmm. So these are horrible stresses that nobody is listening to. So it takes about 60 seconds to say, hey, what's going on? The medical profession isn't listening. They're not trained to do it. The younger generation of surgeons is being trained even less so in doing that. It's become almost all technology. Even the older guys, I guess I have to put myself in the older category, <laughs> sort of disturbed by these young guns coming out the last five years and just firing surgery away at people that at a level that's astounding. And then we're doing bigger operations. We're now creating sagittal imbalance as an opportunity to do more surgery. We're now doing more fusions in the presence of spinal stenosis, which is a stable spine, not unstable. So we're finding all these ways to do fusions because they pay more. I don't think that's the main motivation, even though it certainly comes into the play here. Medicare, unfortunately, created a fee schedule that was draconian, horrible, as far as non-operative care. Of course, everybody else follows suit on that. There's just a bunch of factors in place, but the last five years, it has be become dangerous to see a spine surgeon. So if you go see a spine surgeon around the country, the chance of actually having the surgeon, recommended surgery is between 20 to 50%. Mm -hmm. We looked at my data about a month ago, and if you came to me as a patient, the chance of me recommending surgery to you is 4.5%. Hmm. And our patients are getting better. So it's not like we're saying, you know, we're not going to do anything for you. But um, we have just endless number of successes. I come out of my clinic just on fire, energized every time I go to clinic because these people are so excited. So it's been a remarkably enjoyable phase. I'll say that 10 times again <laughs> of my career. It's extraordinarily unexpected. I'm still a surgeon. And I just, every time I walk in the room, I go, what? And so it's interesting and fascinating. And it's been just been really interesting phase of my career. David, that, that's incredible. If you're willing, I just feel like there's so much more to share. We would absolutely love to get you back on the show. I, I, this is the model. You know, Tim and I have had the luxury of interviewing so many incredible people on this podcast. And this, the model that you're carrying out, I mean, this holding back of more aggressive interventions, this really taking a good history and making these connections that folks have significant emotional overlay, addressing the anxiety, you know, getting into these really, really strong predictors that we know are highly 
highly relevant in a neurological presentation of pain. I mean, this is it. And, and your outcomes show it. <laughs> your outcomes right. show that that following the roadmap that is that, that is evidence-based care um, is better. Action items, listeners, get to backincontrol.com, first of all. Look at the website. I mean, read through it. It's incredible. Get the book. Before we do sign off, anything else you want to share? And at the very least, would you mind leaving a bit of a calling card um, anywhere folks can reach you? So a couple things. I mean, I'd love to do an episode or podcast on the the neuro, the neuro neurological basis of pain or neurophysiological basis of pain. So we didn't really get into the basic science part of it very much. Um, the second thing, the family issues are becoming unbelievably huge. And the family issues are a whole separate topic. That I think each one of those would be a podcast that I would love to do because it's the very exciting phase of the practice. On the website, um, backincontrol.com, I update, I put up a new website post every week that gives a lot of depth to the process. So just sign up on the website for um, the weekly emails. I think you'll see that. I think on the website, there's actually ways you can email me directly. There's a lot of the contact information is right there. And then I think going forward, I think we'll talk about this offline in a second, is that um, I'm working with several different entities to create a curriculum to simply train your therapist on how to do this. It's just not that hard. And so I think, again, with just simple structural things to do, we can create a process where your therapist can put this into action within weeks. And again, it's mostly self-directed. Everybody does it completely differently. Again, pain is complex. Each individual is complex. The book is just a framework. I won't say just a framework. It is a framework. It is not the solution. Mm-hmm. So it's a framework that will organize your thinking in a way that you can figure out your own solution for you. That's the key issue here. It's that framework. So yeah, I, there's lots of things to do. I'm, I'm extremely excited. As I looked on your website and looked at the neuroscience that you're putting out there, it's remarkably, I mean, literally your group is about 10 years ahead of the medical profession right now. I think the alternative, alternative medicine people are also close behind. And the medical profession just isn't moving forward on this stuff. It's just incredibly frustrating to me um, to watch that happen. But nonetheless, I think it's a grassroots effort. I think I connected you with a group in Oregon who's, who call themselves the Paniacs, the physical therapists. And they're the most energized group I've ever met. I'm going to be the keynote speaker here in about three weeks. And uh, I'm very excited about working in that group. So, yeah, I'm excited about working with all groups. But the physical therapist I'm particularly excited about working with because you get to spend the time with the patient. You're actually doing physical work. And, again, somatic tools or these physical tools are a major aspect in healing. So the therapy aura offers a dimension right now that you combine with these other tools. That's a wonderful dimension. So yeah, lots of potential in your world to take the neuroscience and combine it with what you do and create a very, very powerful process. Awesome. Well, thank you once again, Doc. That was an incredible conversation. Really appreciate your time. I'm essentially stunned. That was an incredible episode. And Dr. David Hanscom, you know, his voice is not only authentic, real, he is speaking out about what we've talked a lot about in terms of the overutilization of surgery. I mean, to say that, you know, it's dangerous to see a spine surgeon now in the United States. Again, it's not throwing everyone under the bus, but it's very clear that we're going at more higher and higher rates in this country when that is not the direction we should be going and that, you know, we're actively harming people. Again, the purpose of this podcast, Dr. Hanscom hit it, we're creating a tribe out there, a tribe of professionals that are are going to change the paradigm. So please share this episode with your friends and colleagues and family members. Head over to iTunes, like us on iTunes, hop on the Facebook page, the Pain Reframed Facebook page. Check out uh, 
his book and and go to his website backingcontrol.com and finally just uh, join us in, on the conversation again check out the International Spine and Pain Institute or Evidence in Motion or, or find us on Twitter you guys have a most exceptional day Pain Reframed is brought to you by our sponsor the International Spine and Pain Institute check out their transformative pain science programming at ispinstitute.com